0: March 24, 1991, an important moment happened in California, which resulted in a sound much like a train wreck that was heard by a person living a mile away from the event. Vibrations were felt 10 miles away. Now, it wasn't a bomb. Uh, the event, what happened that could be heard a mile away felt 10 miles away, one of the oldest and largest redwoods in California crashed to the ground. People called the tree the Dyerville Giant, and it still lies where it fell. When it stood, the tree was 362 feet tall. To give you an idea of what that means, that's the height of a 30-story building. Its diameter is 17 feet Experts estimate its weight at over 1 million pounds, and its age, probably 2,000 years. The tree was growing when our Lord and Savior walked this earth. Now, when Jesus Christ died, the reverberations of that event echoed throughout the ages, touching countless numbers of lives, millions upon millions, Of people, and it shook them down to the very soul. It changed them. It transformed them. It made them into something brand new. But before he died, another time of great importance took place. Before he died, as he prepared his disciples for the shaking that was about to come. Today, As we look, preparing ourselves for the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at the account of this time of great importance found in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 14, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 26, and I ask you again to listen with both ears, with all of your heart, stand if you will, as we read the word. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is an amazing account. Uh, only the account of the Lord's Supper found in 1 Corinthians predates this. We believe this was the first written gospel, and so the first gospel telling of this event. And it's such a powerful thing, and it ends with such a tame verse, it seems. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I'll let you know, most likely, they sang one of the Hallel Psalms from Psalm 114 to 118. Traditionally, uh, the songs that would be sung at the Passover. Now, we just sang some beautiful songs, and someone has pointed out, when we hear about them singing songs, uh, we think about this beautiful music we sang. The Hallel Psalms were very boisterous and very loud and probably would not sound very musical to us but it signified an important event. When we look at this today, I want you to know we're going to look at three very important truths that this text shows us. We're going to try to understand how that connects with our hearts and our lives. We'll begin with this truth. There is great purpose in communion. I've told you before, I really like the word of communion for the Lord's Supper. It's one of the terms used, and there are many different terms. But I like it because it points to something very true. What happens in this place when we come to this table? We are having communion with our Lord. We are worshiping Him. We are loving Him. We are being thankful to Him. But we are also having communion with one another. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But great purpose in this particular event, and the event's purpose was important enough for precise arrangements to have been made. This is how important this particular Passover is. Jesus goes into meticulous details about what's going to happen. He and his disciples most likely are in Bethany, probably staying at the home of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. But they're going to be going into Jerusalem for the Passover because at that moment in time, the only place you could eat the Passover was in Jerusalem because that's where the only allowable sacrifice could be made. So they're in Bethany and they're getting ready to go into Jerusalem and two of his disciples ask him, well, where are we going to go so that you can eat the Passover? Doesn't that sound strange? Wouldn't you expect them to say, so we could eat it? Well, the fact that they're singling him out is very indicative. In every family, there would be a a leader who led the Passover. For all intents and purposes, in this group, Jesus is the head of the family. And so they're showing him respect. Where are we going to go so that you may eat the Passover? And then he goes into his detail. Now, it was the Passover, one of the most important feasts in Israel's history. Uh, Jerusalem would have been packed. It would have been... People from all over the known world would have come to Jerusalem for this event. Now, Mark says it was the first day of the unleavened bread. Ordinarily... The first day of the Feast Unleavened Bread is the 15th of Nisan. It's taught, spoken about in Leviticus and in Numbers. The day after the Passover. But Mark says it was the first day of Unleavened Bread when the Passover lamb, it was customary to sacrifice. So, the first day of Unleavened Bread technically would have been the 15th the day after the Passover. And this has caused great consternation among biblical scholars. There's a mistake here. Now, at the time that Mark wrote, according to the Jewish historian, ancient Jewish historian Josephus, it became very common to refer to the entire eight-day festival from Passover through the Unleavened Bread to call it the Feast of the Unleavened Bread altogether. And it seems that very loosely people would refer to the the 14th day, the day of Passover itself, as the first day of the whole feast. So they're there. It's time to go into the week. The day of the week is Thursday. And they're about to come into the city. And his disciples say, well, what do we do? We are told that he signals out two disciples... The Gospel of Luke let us know it's Peter and John. And he says, you're going to go into the city, and there you are going to meet a man. He's going to be carrying a jar of water. Now, I do want you to point out, he doesn't say you've got to go track down a man carrying a jar of water. He says he will meet you, which suggests what? He's looking for them. He's ready for them. Now, how will they know they get the right man? What if they chose the wrong guy? Well, the fact that he's carrying a jar of water was very unusual. In the first century Palestine, men normally didn't carry jars of water. Women did. So for a man to be carrying it would have been very unusual. Now, we need to keep in mind he's a servant. When you meet, you're going to follow him to whatever house he's going to. Once he gets there, you're going to tell the owner of the house, the master wants to know where his guest room is so that he can have Passover with the disciples. The teacher tells us. Now, when they go, it turns out, They find everything they're supposed to find. Jesus told them, now when you have found the place, then you need to make preparation. Well, the the room is already decked out. The fact that it's ready means there are couches, there are cushions, there's table. It's all laid out for them. And Jesus says, you need to make preparation. What did he mean? It meant they've got to pick up the food. They're going to do the groceries and they're going to get it ready. It would have included getting the lamb, preparing the lamb, getting the unleavened cakes, the wine, the water, the bitter herbs, the crushed fruit, most with vinegar, all of the elements of Passover. It's your job to get that ready. And then I'm going to come. Why is this much detail given? Did we really need to know all of this? When we first read, it's kind of like when you're reading genealogies and you wonder why in the world are we reading this? What does it signify? Why are we given so much detail about this event? Well, as you read it, it seems that Mark is suggesting this was a previous arrangement by Jesus. In fact, R.T. France said, with as many as people as would have been in Jerusalem at that time, it would, they would have been hard-pressed to find a place if there hadn't already been arrangements. Think about deciding on the last day of the event, you're going to go down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and you're going to get a place in the French Quarter. No, you're not. And I'm not sure that's the best use of your time anyway, but it would have been hard for them to find. So apparently... At some point in time, Jesus contacts a man and tells him, I'm going to be having Passover in your home. And when we're ready, we'll come. Now, some have suggested that what we have is not a prearrangement. Some have suggested it's a miracle. Jesus is looking forward in divine knowledge, and he knows all that's going to happen and lays it out. I think if that's what Mark meant, Mark would have given us a better hint at that. It just reads that Jesus set it out. Now, why would he make prior arrangements apart from having to find a place? Did you notice he doesn't tell them the name of the man whose home they're going to be at? He doesn't tell them where the home is. He could have done both. He could have said, go to such and such home in this part of Jerusalem, meet who, whatever his name would have been. We don't know who he is. And everything will take place. But he doesn't say that. There's a, there's kind of a sense of secrecy here. No clear indication where you're going, with whom you're going to spend the, the, the Passover. Coupled with that, he sends them in to the city and he waits until evening to bring the rest of the twelve. Now don't get hung up. People who like finding problems say, wait a minute, two of the disciples are out in the city, but it says Jesus brought the 12. And so some folks have said, well, those wouldn't have been the any of the 12. Well, the truth is the 12 kind of became a name for the group. And he brings the group into the city during the evening. Do you remember what happened on what we now call Palm Sunday? When Jesus came into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion, and it's daytime, what do the crowds do? They go crazy. They're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down palms. The multitude is there. It's causing such a raucous time that the enemies of Christ are telling him, you need to tell them to be quiet. I think all of this is involved because Jesus doesn't want a parade he doesn't want a crowd of people around him he's keeping it quiet for one very particular reason. I believe Jesus did have knowledge that was supernatural. he knew Judas was going to betray him. had he given a street name if he given a Uh, the name of the owner of the street. If they had come in the middle of the day, everybody in Jerusalem would have known the guy that came last week is here. Everybody would have been aware and Judas would have been given. The the scripture actually says he, he was going to look for the opportune time to take Christ. And it was absolutely crucial for our Lord that this particular Passover had to happen without any problem. Why? He may have attended as many as three Passovers. Why this one? Because Jesus knows what's going to happen the next day. And he's trying to prepare his disciples as best he can for the events that are coming. And he's about to take the Passover meal And change its meaning forever. This was an incredibly important moment. And Jesus wanted it to go exactly as it should. Without any any kind of possible disturbance. And so Mark gives us all this information. That may be fascinating. But there was purpose behind it. Jesus was going to give his followers, not just the 12, but every follower of Christ throughout the ages, a memorial, a time to remember what was done on their behalf, their purpose. So when I look at the meticulous detail, that I have to understand considering the care Jesus took, To establish this meal, it should never be merely a ritual to observe. It should never be something that we can check off the box there. We've observed the Lord's Supper for this quarter. We've done our duty. Let's get on with it. Something extremely significant happened to our Savior that night. This was his last Passover with his men. In fact, he tells them, I won't drink of this cup again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom when God brings a consummation to all of this and there's going to be not a Passover meal but the marriage supper of the Lamb and Jesus is going to welcome all of his his brothers and sisters home. This was his last moment. And I don't have foreknowledge. The reality is, every time we partake, it could be the last time we do. Now, we could rush through this. We could tack it on the end of the very service, take five minutes to quickly pass out the stuff, and say, we've done our part. And when I was growing up, most of the places I went to church when I was a child and into my teen years, That's exactly how it was done. The Lord's Supper rarely had anything to do with the rest of the service. It was what we do, and as Baptists, we typically do it once a quarter. There's some Baptists who go real crazy and do it once a month. Uh, But we normally do it once a quarter. Something as important to our Lord as this was, It must be equally important to us. That's why for nearly 13 years, can you believe that? Uh, Come the beginning of September, uh, I will begin my 13th year with you. Since I've been with you, when we do the Lord's Supper, our focus, the, the event, the worship, is on the Supper. We want to acknowledge this is a special moment. It was to Christ and it is to be for us. So we must never forget that the purpose of this meal is an act of communion with our Lord and each other. When we come to this table, I know that Jesus is with us always. But at this particular moment in time, there, is, there becomes a special awareness of not only his being with us, but what he had to do to bring us into the family. And so this is a time when our love should be poured out to Christ. And we're adoring him and we're loving him and we're focusing on him, but it is also a time for us together. That last Passover meal was an intimate, honest, and even painful moment For Jesus and the Twelve. He shared his heart with them. He shared his purpose. And they found themselves drawn together. A group of frightened, doubting men. Bound together because of this one man they have called Lord. And when we come to the table, we are sharing an intimate moment with our Lord. This reminds us of his love. It reminds us of his grace. It reminds us of his forgiveness. And it is an act of communion with each other. You see, let me give you something important about the Lord's Supper. It has to be a corporate experience. Now, I don't care how many people are there when they take the Lord's Supper. But we have no indication anywhere within the word of God that anybody ever takes it alone. This is a body experience. That's why the Corinthians were in so much trouble. They weren't discerning the body of fellow believers. They were each man out for his own thing. But here, we're together in this, reminding each other. Some some of you come from different traditions, and it's. what it, uh, uh, well, I think it's a kind of a beautiful tradition. As the elements are passed, in some traditions, you will say to the person next to you, "The Lord's peace be with you," and the response will be, "And with you." We need to pay attention to each other because we're in this thing together. A great purpose shown by Jesus, insistent. That everything go the way it's supposed to go. And our purpose, to draw together. To be together, honoring our Lord in this act, this ordinance. But that's not all there is to it, is there? There is great challenge in communion. I cannot completely imagine what these men must have felt at that moment. A great challenge, and what was that? As the meal progressed, Jesus revealed his knowledge that betrayal was coming. Can you imagine? You're sitting in a room with men that you have walked with, lived with, grown with for three years, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One who's eating this meat, one of you will betray me. And it must have been horrible to hear that. It must have been completely and totally a, a, a knock that they, they couldn't have understood. Surely, none of the 12, none of the 12, except the one actually going to betray, would have ever thought it possible that any of them could betray the Lord, could do this heinous act of betrayal. None of them ever, they didn't, you know, now when you read the Gospels and John will give hints about it, he'll say, Judas complained about not giving the money to the poor with the woman because he wanted to keep the money. Well, John didn't know that at the time. None of them looked at Judas and said, oh, when he said, one of you betrayed they didn't look and point at Judas. We know who it is. None of them knew. And they couldn't believe it, but Jesus said it was going to happen, so they know it has to happen. And at that point, the scripture says they were saddened. And folks, this isn't, oh, this is in the gut sorrow. Then each one of them starts asking a question. Surely not I. Someone's point out, except for Judas, that was an honest question. It was a question that was prompted by their fear, by their lack of confidence in the, themselves. The very fact that they asked the question, even though it's asked in such a way that they they expect, they want a no answer, they asked the question Because they can't be sure. Asking the question showed they were full of doubt. And I believe as each one of them start asking that question around that table, surely it's not I. They're looking at Jesus and they're hoping he will say, no, it's not you. But he doesn't. And when he does describe who the betrayer is, he doesn't do anything that points out Judas. We sometimes think, and some have have tried to say uh, that when he says the one who's dipping his bread in the bowl with me is the one, and they say, okay, see, Judas and Jesus must have been reaching for the bowl at the same time. But I don't believe that the phrase, the one eating me with me and the one dipping with me was meant to single out Judas. Do you know how I'm... Pretty positive that's true. Because if I just, if I were to tell you that Dave has got a gun and he's waiting for them to service, one, you'd either run away or some of you would be reaching for yours. If he singled out Judas, I don't think Judas would have made it out of that room that night. But he did. And Jesus even utters a word of woe. Woe to the man who betrays me. And he says, the Son of Man has to go just as it's written. There are a lot of different passages of scripture he may have been referencing. But interestingly, Psalm 44 which is a dis- discussion of the servant of the Lord at a horrible moment in time. That's the passage, that's the Psalm that you'll find the words, a friend will betray me. And a lot of people think when Jesus said, woe to the one, woe to the betrayer, it'd be better if he'd never been more, that he's angry, that he's kind of pronouncing a curse on him. I tend to fall in line with those who don't see this as a curse. I see this very similar when Jesus is sitting overlooking Jerusalem and he begins to weep for Jerusalem because they're sheep without a shepherd and he hurts for these people who've lost their way. Folks, I believe that Jesus loved Judas. And I believe there was sorrow in his heart. When he says it would have been better if he hadn't been born. But there's one other thing that woe does. Even though he says, It is why I came to go out and die. When he says woe to the betrayer, it points out, He's still responsible. The sovereign plan of God that Jesus would go to the cross, but Jesus was showing every human being that had part of that had part of it. And they were responsible. You know that old hymn? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you were to take a look around at all the people who are gathered here today, guess what? Every one of us were there. And every one of us is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Because our sin put him there. But somebody's written, and I find this fascinating, I think it's probably true. James Brooks, in his commentary, said, Mark probably wanted his readers or hearers to ask themselves whether they would betray Jesus in the face of persecution or other trial. And he wrote every modern reader of the gospel to ask the same question. Could I have betrayed Jesus? If we're honest, at some point in our walk with Christ, all of us have. With that in mind, that Mark, writes about the question, hoping that his readers would look at themselves. Just as the disciples examined their hearts concerning this horrible news, we should always examine ours. Our hearts. Paul called the Corinthians to a time of self-examination to see if they were walking in tune with the body of Christ, the church about them. Now, When it comes to the time of self-examination, this is not to determine and it is not to suggest that only perfect people get to take the Lord's Supper. Because if only perfect people could take the Lord's Supper, who could ever take it? None of us. This isn't about being perfect. But it does call us to examine our hearts. Every time I come to this table, I am forced to look at Danny. And I need to look honestly. What is the thrust of our lives? Are we we seeking to serve the Lord? Are we walking in love with each other? Are we working for a God-honoring unity among our brothers and sisters? Are we loyal to our Christ? Or does our commitment come to Jesus In infrequent fits of conscience. Every once in a while I get stirred up. I'm going to live for Jesus. Until the next temptation. If we cannot answer positively. If I look at myself honestly. I cannot say at this moment in time. My heart I want to serve the Lord. I want to have him honor be honored in my life. I want to live for him. If we can't say, I'm there, then there's an answer. I've known people who've been afraid to take the Lord's Supper because Paul said, that's why some people in Corinth had died, gotten sick and died because they were so out of the Lord's will with the body. And so there are people who are just terrified of taking the Lord's Supper. Well, folks, We should not fear looking into our hearts for this meal. I should not be afraid of looking at myself. You see, if all we can ever see is our guilt, when I look inward, if all I can see is that I have failed the Lord, all I can see is that I've been unkind to brothers and sisters, all I can see are the mistakes, then yeah, I should be terrified. let's remember what this supper is about. Our Lord has paid the price for our forgiveness. Our Lord has paid the price to cleanse us, to remove from us our guilt, to cleanse us from our shame. So if you did not come prepared for the Lord's Supper, And if you have a sense that I am not where I should be, this is your moment. A time for preparation. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord. And I'm going to ask you in the next few minutes to be honest with Christ. And if it is not your heart to follow him, if you have been walking out of connection with brothers and sisters in the Lord, you have been walking, harboring bitterness. If you've been walking, living a life of selfishness, don't be afraid to admit that before our Christ. Don't be afraid to ask the Lord, show me who I am and take my sin And remove it from me as far as the east is from the west. Purify me and cleanse me and give me a heart to follow you. Give me a heart for you. As you have looked at your heart, as you have been honest with the Lord, and you have shared your need for cleansing, your forgiveness, you share with Him your love for Him, and your desire to walk with Him. Know that He is here. I know that He brings cleansing. We are told in the Scripture so many different ways. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We are told that He blots out our transgressions, that He lifts our sin off of us. That as far as the East is from the West, so far He has removed our sin. We are told that he casts it into the sea. We are told in the word that he tramples our sin. My friends, if you have opened your heart before Christ today, know this. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. So, let's take a look at our final truth. There's purpose, communion, opening ourselves up to the Lord and to each other. There's challenge, and we have just spent time opening ourselves before him. And the final truth for us today, there's great meaning in communion. This is amazing to me. Jesus transformed a meal marking Israel's deliverance from Egypt into a celebration of deliverance from sin through his act of atonement. It's no longer about being set free for us from the slavery of Egypt. It's about us being set free from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, And eventually, we will one day be separated and removed from the very presence of sin, all because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Now, we're familiar with the meaning of the supper. It points to a great sacrifice which makes us whole. He took the bread and he blessed it. and the uh, traditional Passover prayer for the blessing of bread, praise be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the Uh, of the world who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And he said to his disciples, as he broke and started passing it around, this is my body. Now in chapter 10 of Mark, he told them, the Son of Man has come to give his life a ransom for many. But right now, he is making it as crystal clear as he possibly can. It is his death. It is his death that was absolutely crucial, central, To their salvation. Just as the death of a lamb was necessary for Passover, the lamb of God had to die that humans could experience salvation. And then he gave thanks for the cup. And he may have used again a traditional prayer, praise be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. But I do want you to notice that Mark specifically says he thanked God And that verb to thank is the word that gives the Lord's Supper one of its most formal titles, the Eucharist. It means the Thanksgiving. And I like that term. Even though most Baptists are going to be very uncomfortable with Eucharist, I like the term because it reminds us this is a time of Thanksgiving. The wine represented the blood that was about to be shed. And that blood was sufficient, Jesus said, for many. Now who did he mean many? All of those throughout all of the ages who have had faith in Jesus' act of sacrifice. The blood was sufficient. Decades, decades ago, Andre Crouch wrote and sang, "'The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary, "'the blood that gives me strength from day to day, "'it will never lose its power. "'It reaches to the highest mountain. "'It flows to the lowest valley. "'The blood that gives me strength from day to day, "'it will never lose its power. "'It soothes my doubts and it calms my fears.'" And it drives all my tears. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. His death brings us life. And while there is a solemn side to this meal, we must not forget the incredible joy that is ours because of Christ's actions. Like the 12, there's a struggle within us. It's hard for us to deal with the death of Christ. And the reason it's hard for us to deal with his death is the knowledge that he died for our sins. It's hard for us to acknowledge, I am responsible for the Son of Man giving his life. And yes, that hurts, and it's painful, and it brings tears, and it brings sorrow, but let us never forget, This is a time of gratitude. Why? Because Jesus did not have to be dragged kicking and screaming to the cross. Even in the garden when he asked the father if there's any way that this cup can pass. But not what I want, what you want. There's an old song based on a scripture that talks about a legion of angels. He could have called 10,000 angels. And he didn't. Michael Card, powerful song about why the crucifixion. Asked why did they have to use nails? His love would have kept him there. We have gratitude. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life thankful. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with a joy that exceeds all of the trouble this world can bring because Jesus Christ went willingly to Calvary so that you and I can have life more abundant. So this, there was a time in my life every time I did the Lord's Supper all I focused in was the pain of the knowledge of his death. And then one day it's like Jesus flipped a switch in my mind. This is a time of joy. This is a time of joy. And so when we partake today, may our hearts lift up thanksgiving and praise to the God who has saved us. When we take the elements of the supper, it should be with great joy, thanking God for all that he's done, great gratitude, great love. And so we are going, to come to a time of great importance. And so, friends, this is a joyful feast for the people of God. Congregation of Jesus Christ, the Lord has prepared his table for all who love him and trust him alone for their salvation. All who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who desire to live in obedience to him as Lord, are now invited to come with gladness to the table of the Lord. Come to the table, not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come, not because you're strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim to heaven's rewards, but because of your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need.